Uh, this morning I'm going to read from Zechariah. Then the word of the Lord God Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and when the Negev and the western foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts, their, their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will, he will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Got to walk way back to get the... They got nervous. They said there's nothing out there. If there's no notes, who knows where Cam's going this morning. Oh, then that, that, would, that would make us a praying church in and about itself, man. Woo! Hey, well, good morning. Um, I'm Cam. If I haven't met you, I would love to. And uh, I, I don't know if you guys are big on the, like, the newest like, Christian cliché. Um, some of you are, some of you just crush like all the Christian podcasts and you're, you know all of them. I'd say like the past five years, the, the most frequent used buzzword in Christian cliche circles is rhythm. You know, like that's like the question now. It's not like, hey, how's your heart? It's like, hey, bro, how are your rhythms? You know, like how, like how are you, you, you hitting that Sabbath lately? Like you, you know, but you guys know, yeah, we're a rhythm church, um, which is always the worst and the best. Like anytime something becomes a cliche, it's mostly because it's really true too, right? And rhythms are like a part of our humanity. They're a part of what makes us um, image bearers of God, that we have rhythms, um, right? We have these things called, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it. I really tried. Circadian, did I say that right? Circadian rhythms, right? It's like how you eat and how you sleep. It's not how you eat. It's how you sleep and stuff. Okay. All right. You get it, right? All right. Rhythms. What we do as a church is we try to follow the, the rhythms of the church since the church's birth, since the origin um, it's why we do things like liturgy that, that make us call to worship, and then we do confession and lament, and then we, we, we have a rhythm to it. We also have rhythms with how we do things annually and in our church calendar, and Advent is part of our rhythm. And Advent is the, the month, the four weeks that lead into Christmas, or the celebration of the incoming birth of Jesus, the incarnation of God himself coming into our story to heal us, to redeem us 
and ultimately to save us and send us and lead us. But I don't know about you, but Christmas usually isn't like the, like it's a great season. I really like it. Um, but I wouldn't say it's like the spiritual season for me, you know, like Easter, like let's get hype, the resurrection of Jesus, Good Friday, but like Easter, it's just like, okay, the, the baby comes, and then what about the life of Jesus, and the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus? And, and sometimes it's actually because we skip over the Advent process. And Advent, in, in a lot of ways, I, I've already used this illustration, but I use it in an old building. So I think if I can use a, right, that, is that how it works? I can repeat my illustration as long as we're in a new building, new, new building, new illustration? Okay. Um, and I'm on kid number two, so we're trying to figure, it's the same illustration, just a new kid, okay? So it's all good. Um, but we, I did this with Blakely, and now, now we're with Mav, and we're in this progression, right, where, where he's really trying to learn how to jump, okay? And some of you thought, you know, walking was like the, cli- like the pinnacle of, like, once your kid can walk, it's like, yeah, that's just the, the next step to jumping. That's really where we want to go, okay? So they crawl, they walk, and then they jump, okay? So that's where we're at. We're on, we're on part three. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen a little kid try to jump, okay, who doesn't know how to jump, but they have this thing in their head, right? They really want to go high, so they're, like, up on their toes, you know, it's like a really, it's kind of cute. It's funny. They're like kind of giggling for a little bit, but eventually they get frustrated because they just really want to go high. And what you got to do if anybody's trying to teach their kid how to jump, I'll, I'll give you a little, little coaching tip here. You put them on a trampoline. <laughs> I know, it's genius. Okay. I know. Th- thank me later. Um, but here's why. When you put someone on a trampoline, what happens? Before you go up, you go down, right? And before you're launched up, you actually sink into the trampoline. And it's amazing to see it click in a kid's head, right? Like they, they go down and all of a sudden, before they even know it, they're kind of back up. And they're like, oh my gosh. And then they start going deeper. And they realize, and then they get happy and they start jumping on a trampoline and it's crazy, right? It's awesome. Seeing a kid jump is like the best thing ever, you know? It's just like they're just laughing. Like I don't know what, it, even kids when they just run, they just like giggle. Like when's the last time you were just like running? Like, ha, ha, ha. Like, like that doesn't happen anymore. What happened to us? Oh, man. But these kids... Right? When I see Mav now, he, he, it clicks in his head because he realizes that for him to go high, which he's wanted to do the whole time, he has to go low first. He has to go deep in order to be launched up. And that's what Advent is. Advent is about going low so that we can go high. Advent is about slowing down enough, going deep enough that we can be launched up and to embrace the beauty of what the incarnation of Jesus is really about. So if you've ever had a moment of desperation or hopelessness or this deep need for healing or breakthrough or peace, you've tasted what we are trying to cultivate in Advent. See, because for a lot of us, Christmas and even our Christian lives in general, they become just like we're just these babies trying to do these little calf raises, you know? It's like we don't go all the way down so that we don't, then we don't go all the way up. And it's just this kind of superficial, like, okay, here we go again. It's about the baby in the manger. Let me see the stuff. Let's sing the songs and move on to what we think Christmas is actually about. But we have to sit in Advent. We have to sit in this moment to go deep so that we might be launched up to experience all that this is about, all that Jesus is for us and all that he's done in and through us. And so what we're looking at in this season of Advent is we're, we're trying to change our perspective a little bit. We're looking at it through a different lens. We're looking at it through the minor prophets in the Old Testament. There, there's 12 of them, just so you know. There's 12 minor prophets. The real Christian families tend to name their kids after the minor prophets. That's how you know. It's like, I don't know where that book is, but I think it's biblical. Like Amos, you know, it's like minor prophet, okay? That's how you know, all right? But we're looking through their lens. We're, we're trying to see what is it that they were anticipating, when they longed for a king to come, what was it that they were longing for? 
And then how do we position our hearts and unify our hearts with their hearts to see what are we actually longing for when we ask for Jesus to meet us? When we ask for Jesus to break into our stories, when we celebrate the Christmas story of Jesus coming, what are we actually celebrating? So we're looking at that through their lens. And this morning, I'm going to look at one of those Christian names, Zechariah, okay? So if anybody's read the book of Zechariah, you probably name your kid after him because he's awesome. I don't know. All right, let's pray, and then I'll get into it. Jesus, we, we come to you this morning um, longing for more of your presence. Would you do that thing in our hearts where you stir our affections for you, where we sense our own weakness and powerlessness without you? And would you come, Holy Spirit, come into our hearts and our minds this morning. We don't need more information or more ideas or more facts, but we need your presence and we need your power to come this morning. Amen. Amen. So, the prophet Zechariah, his... uh, his word for us that Joe just read, it comes for us as God's people. They've just returned from exile, and they've been in exile for years, and now they're in this process of kind of rebuilding the temple. They're kind of trying to redo the Israel things that they weren't able to do before. They were in that place, you know, where like the grass looks way greener on the other side, and now they're on the other side, and they're like, man, I'm still just me, you know? It's not as green as I thought it was going to be. That, that's, that's where they're at. So even though their circumstances have changed, their hope remains low. They're not experiencing the life that they longed for. And in that moment, Zechariah speaks this word to him. He says, Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. And he said this, Ask all the people of Israel and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? A convicting word for sure, right? He says that you've been doing all of these spiritual things, right? Like who fasts anymore anyways? He's like, you guys were fasting. But he says, you were doing them for the wrong reasons. He asked him, why were you actually doing that? He's like, great guys, you guys are not eating. You guys are doing all of the traditions. You're doing all of the stuff. But why are you doing it? As if to say your beliefs and your behavior and what looks like on the outside, it's right, but your heart is far from me. And it's this subtle warning even to us that our life can be full of Christian activity, but our lives and hearts can still be far from God. And that's ultimately what religion is, right? That's, that's, that's religion. Religion, or maybe better said, cold religion is doing the right things for the wrong reasons, to, to prove yourself, to earn something to make yourself appear a certain way or maybe even just alleviate the, the, the weird bit of guilt that you have from your childhood that might rise up. And it's a dangerous place to be because it smells like life with God, but it's not the same. It's an artificial version. It's the knockoff version of it, you know? It looks the same, but you know it. It falls apart in three weeks. Every single time you try religion, it never works for you. And he's saying it's not even what God wants. It's not his desire. Religion is not what he wants. And this cold religion is actually what keeps us from living the life that God has invited us into. It's the thing that holds us back from becoming and being all that God made us to be. Those words like purpose and destiny, you know, that's what religion is actually holding us back from. And here's why, because you know that life. When your eyes are down, when you're just trying to look like, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I, trying to, am I keeping up? Am I keeping pace? Am I dr-? And your eyes are just down on yourself. Like you're just so actually self-focused that you're trying to do the right stuff 
that your eyes actually are never up. And it's because shame and religion, they're, they're driving you. It's not Jesus. And I want to say this morning, there, there's, there's way more for you than that. There's so much better of a life than that that Jesus has for us. Even as we finished our Galatians series, we're reminded again and again that you were set free from that life. You don't have to live that way anymore. Jesus, he lived the life that you were supposed to live. He died the death that you were supposed to die. And he invites you freely, all that you are, into his presence through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus becomes that sin. He becomes that shame so that now we stand in his presence as sons and daughters. And you are completely free. You don't have to prove a thing again because he's done it all. And so this reframes everything for us. It changes what you look at, that you no longer have to have your eyes down seeing if, if I'm doing the right stuff, but your eyes can look up and see and sense what is the Lord inviting me into? What's next for me in this adventure of following Jesus? And if we can do that, we can see it's not religion that he wants, but it's something entirely different, right? Jesus, he, he said basically the same words to the Pharisees, right? He says this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, or the prophet Amos, he, he says something similar. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Might sting a little, but we got to go down to go up. So just to, you know, all right. He says this, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and your conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations, and your image making. I've had all that I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Isn't that the exact same thing Zachariah said that we just heard? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against one another. So let me even ask you this, like, how do you know you're doing well spiritually? Right? Like, is, is it kind of the thing, like, if I'm doing good, it's because I'm, man, I've been crushing my Bible reading plan. I have a discipleship appointment every week. I've been listening to K-Love on the radio. Hello, you know. I, I, I've been going to community, whatever it is, right? What, what, does that mean you're doing well spiritually? Or, or like, if you're doing bad, it's because I haven't read my Bible in a while. My prayer life is nothing. I've been listening to Drake's new album way too much. You know, that's what it is for me. Just kidding, I don't listen to Drake. Um, is that what it is, though? When, you, when, you, when, when I really ask you, how are you doing spiritually, what do you think of? Is it, is it your own practices and habits or discipline? And I, don't th I think Zachariah would say, that's not it. That's actually not the good indicator of how well you're doing spiritually. Zachariah and Amos, they both would say this. They would say, your religious activity, that's not a good marker for how well you're doing spiritually but it's your lived expression of mercy and justice. Zechariah said, administer justice and show mercy. And Jeremy said this last week, and I want to acknowledge it again. When we say justice, we may or we may not mean what leaps into your mind when you hear that word. Because we know that in recent years, our culture has offered us many understandings of justice that's actually right in alignment with Jesus. And other ways, it is not at all in alignment with what Jesus says. So what do we mean when we say mercy and justice? Well, justice, the word, the word Zechariah uses here is this word mishpat, okay, which means punishing wrongdoers and caring for victims 
of unjust treatment. And whether or not you know it this morning, you, you care about justice, right? Like, I don't know if you know this, we, we went to the zoo last week, okay? And uh, the zoo during December, not great, okay? Not a, lot of, not a lot of animals around, okay? We saw the penguins, who smell terribly, and uh, there was the red panda, the infamous red panda in the St. Louis Zoo. That was it, okay? But I actually learned something about pandas, okay? Something very interesting. Pandas, if a panda has, a twi- have, has twins, which happens semi-regularly, they will pick one of their babies, and they'll just throw the other one away. They'll just let it, they'll just let it die. They'll let it live for itself. Isn't that sad? <laughs> Some of you, you hear that, you're like, that's not right. Could you imagine if a human was like, I'm having twins, but I could, only got the budget for one. So, like, that's, that's wrong. You'd be like, that's if someone in this room, you'd be like, that's not right. And in you, that's, that, that's justice in you, right? Had been married for like six months to have some realization that you care about justice and being right, you know? <laughs> All of us have a heart of justice. We care, we, when we see something that is unjust or not right, it stirs something in us to say, that's not right. We need to change that. And justice is that. It's that God-given human instinct that we need to make things that are not right, right again. And that's what it means to administer true justice. And this word mishpat, it actually means way more than just intellectually agreeing that we are all in made, made in God's image and that we all deserve something, but it's actually to take steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. Zechariah continues, right in verse 10, he says, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, or the foreigner, or the poor. And most scholars, they'd identify these as the the primary kind of four people groups that the scriptures address when it talks about the vulnerable or the poor. And while they're helpful examples, the point isn't actually to identify that this one, and this one, and this one, but it's to say in that culture, in that time, the agrarian society that they lived in, these were the four people groups that had the least amount of power. They were powerless. If you had no land and no money at the time, you had no way of getting money at the time, and you were set back. You had no hope for your future. Not only do you not have hope for your future, but the generations that would come after you, you're hopeless. That's why it says the poor. It means that you have nothing to your name, and you have no hope of actually getting more to your name. You're powerless. And Zechariah is saying to, to administer true justice means to advocate for the vulnerable, to advocate for the powerless, to become a voice to the voiceless, to use whatever source of power, privilege, resources, time, money, energy, talents, to change the structures and prevent the injustice. But he doesn't just say administer true justice, but he says this. He says, administer justice and show mercy and compassion. And this term for mercy, it's this Hebrew word has said, which you've probably heard before, it's the unfailing love of God. It's actually the, it's God's unfailing, unconditional grace and compassion. So even in this passage, right, the Mishpat puts the emphasis on the action, but the mercy and the compassion, it puts the emphasis on your attitude or the motivation or the heart behind the action. It's the same thing we read in Micah 6, right? He says to love mercy and to do justice. So mercy is the heart that expresses itself in justice. What's interesting, though, is if you were to look up this word in the Old Testament, the same word that it uses here, you know who it would describe almost every single time? God. That was an easy answer. Come on, guys. We, we know that one. It's always, you're like, is it Jesus? It's the Old Testament. Oh, it's all right. Okay. 
It explains God. God, even in, in, in Exodus 34, the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, Exodus chapter 34, it says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. The first word that God uses to describe himself is mercy. It's compassion. You know what motivates God? His mercy, his compassion. That word means it's something that's in your bowels, in the deepest part of you that wells up inside of you. It's God's mercy. It's his compassion. And so for us to show mercy and compassion is to share God's own heart. It's to love what God loves, to hate what he hates, to weep over what causes him to weep. Almost every healing story in the Gospels, Jesus, it says, is moved by compassion. It's what drives him. It's what fuels him. It's the gas in his tank. It's compassion. It's mercy. Compassion, quite literally, it means to suffer with. It's to identify with the vulnerable. It's to identify with the weak. And there's this distinction between pity and compassion, right? Pity is actually when we have this superior view of ourselves and when you look down on someone and you feel bad for them and then maybe some guilt or some shame or some mixed with that pity, it leads to something that we, I just call charity. Not that charity is bad, charity not in the right word, but, it's, but, but, but charity, what I mean by that is that, that kind of involvement where you can stand at a distance, like maybe give something or, 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 at a distance, or, or tweet something or play in a golf tournament. And not that generosity is bad, I'm all pro all golf tournaments, okay, you know that, right? But pity and charity is when you can stand at a distance and your heart is actually unmoved. Your life is still in the same bubble that it's always been in and you, your, your lived experience has never changed. But compassion means to identify with the vulnerable. And justice, what Zachariah says, true justice, it flows from a heart of mercy. Mercy changes the way that we see people. That they're not projects or screw-ups, but they're fellow humans made in the image of God who are worthy of love and respect and value. And growing this heart of mercy and compassion is nearly impossible without proximity. Moving from a heart of pity to one of compassion requires proximity to the vulnerable. Even in my own experience, um, I spent a couple years kind of having this weekly rhythm, hello, rhythm, of going to uh, this houseless day center. And I just go around there and hang out sometimes. And sometimes we do Bible study and sometimes we'd play bingo. And um, really honestly, when I first started going there, I, I had a complete heart of pity. I went in there and I felt really good about myself. I said, finally, I'm doing what the Lord has called me to do, you know. And I show up and, hey, I'm Cam, nice to meet you, just trying to do God's work, you know. And I'd, I'd, I'd walk around. But in some ways it's funny, in some ways I'm deeply ashamed of that. And I'm embarrassed at that heart posture because the longer you spend time there, the more your heart starts to change, right? Because they became my friends. Like I, I start to cry with them and pray with them. And man, my heart is still hard in so many ways. And I'm still so slow to move into any form of discomfort. But through proximity, through being with people, my heart, the Spirit of God began to do something in me that I still somehow, I don't know how to articulate it other than just saying it's a little taste of his compassion. And then I'm beginning to identify with them more than I'm having this new, where I look down on them. So a quick plug, like we long to be a church of mercy 
and justice. And for some of us, that sounds great, but we have no idea where to start. Start with proximity. We have so many organizations in the city. Carol just explained her own experience with proximity, which I didn't even know she was going to say. It's beautiful, right? We have City of Refuge and Love Columbia and Turning Point and Coyote Hill and Safe Families and CASA and schools that we can be involved in, among so many other things. And it's just an invitation from the Spirit to become people of mercy, but it starts with proximity. And it might start with pity, but as we're in the presence of the weak and vulnerable, our hearts begin to form the God-shaped compassion inside of us. And it's because this, this proximity is actually what makes the story of Christmas so scandalous, right? See, Zechariah, he doesn't leave the people with this charge, but he continues with a promise, which is what God does all the time, by the way. Every invitation, every charge, every command, it always is followed by a promise of his presence or a promise that he will fulfill what he is going to do. But he says this in Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He says to this people who are experiencing not what they longed for, they they long for something more, and he says, you have a king that is coming, but it's not going to be as you think it is. I mean, I think of the hearers sometimes, right? Like, they're probably listening to this, like, your king comes, righteous and victorious. They're like, let's go. That's right. That's my God, you know, sword in both hands, lightning bolts in my hands. I don't even know how you hold a lightning bolt, but he's going to be having them in his hand. Righteous, victorious, here he comes. Justice, come on. But the very next words are like a total curveball, right? Righteous and victorious, lowly and on a donkey. You're saying our king can't even get a horse? Like he's got to come on a donkey, like, that's, that's got to be the hero. Like, what is, what is this? This is why so many of the Hebrew people missed him. Because the, what they anticipated, what they thought he was going to be like, they couldn't fathom a God who would incarnate himself as a baby. It's what's scandalous about the story. But it's what Christmas is all about, the utter humility and mercy and compassion of God. Someone who defines his own heart as merciful and gracious. Or in Matthew, as gentle and lowly. Someone who doesn't stand away from the pain, but who enters in, right? This King Jesus is the embodiment of mercy and justice. It's actually all he did. It's why the gospel accounts are even necessary, and maybe even some of the most important things that we read, because they give us a picture of how Jesus, how God himself interacts with humanity. So did Jesus come to forgive your sins? Absolutely. Amen. Yes. No question about it. Did he do less than that? No. But he's not just some God who stands at a distance and says, sins are forgiven. And that would be totally fine if he did that, but he does more than that. He enters into the story. He writes himself into it. He's a God who's so fueled with compassion and mercy that he writes himself into the story. And according to Luke, Jesus starts his ministry with this. Sometimes I love Jesus. This is a moment that I'm like, you are a, a real one, Jesus. But he says this, right? He walks into the synagogue. He unrolls the scroll. This is how he starts his ministry before he's done anything. He opens it up and he reads. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. And he just rolls up the scroll and he goes and sits back down. And it says that everybody's eyes, you know, they're like, what? 
Everybody just looks to Jesus. And he goes, today, the scripture is being fulfilled. AKA, I'm, I'm him. I'm the one. And his mission statement, I'm coming to bring justice. I am justice. The poor will hear good news. The oppressed will receive freedom. The prisoners, liberty. I am him. And then, and then he doesn't just say it, but it's exactly what he does. It's who he embodies. He is, he does justice. He's the exemplar of justice because he's the essence of justice. He doesn't just have cute words for us and cliches, but he comes in humble power. He is justice and he does justice fueled by mercy. And how does he do that? Well, he heals people of leprosy. He, he gets close enough to those who are unwelcomed in the community and he heals them. He brings them in. He has a man who is considered the enemy of someone who is in charge of the Roman guard, he, who, the, the Roman guard who is right now oppressing him. And Jesus is so filled with compassion that he heals his servants and then he praises his faith. He restores people's ability to walk, to hear, to see. He makes things right again. He liberates those who are under demonic oppression. He sits with those who are considered sellouts to their own people while also eating with the marginalized and those who are considered outcasts and sinners and social outcasts in society. He's the one who sees the children, the lowest of the class at the time, and he says the kingdom belongs to them. He offers a lonely woman at a well who has no business talking to him living water so that she will never thirst again. How does he do this? He gives women a primary place in his discipleship community. He reconciles people of polarizing political ideologies like pro-Rome Matthew, the tax collector, and anti-Rome Simon, the zealot. And he says, you will learn to love each other, and that is how we will change the world. It's what he does. And if he did it then, what makes you think that's not what he's up to now? And what he longs to do with us. Jesus doesn't just come with words, but he comes with power. He is mercy and justice. So our definition of justice is is Jesus advocating for the vulnerable with a heart of compassion. But the interesting thing here is that in order for us to have any hope of becoming people of mercy and justice, we have to see ourselves first as the weak and vulnerable, right? Before we do anything for him, we have to realize that we need him. And Advent even personally is for us to stop and to sit and to say, I need him. It's to take a pause for a moment from the superficial struggles that we might have to pause enough to allow the Spirit of God to search us and know us and reveal to us where we need not just, not just forgiveness for our sins, but King Jesus to come with power and authority and humility to enter into our story. It's where we need him. So even this morning, as you, wherever it is in your life where you're feeling the most vulnerable, the most weak, let, let me seriously encourage you, Advent is the place for that. Advent is the season for that, where you don't say, I'll deal with that someday, but it's saying, no, come now. Jesus has power for that. He has healing grace for that. It's what he came to do. He didn't just stand at a distance, but he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He enters into our pain. He identifies with us. And then he has power to, to bring us out. It's who he is. Tim Keller says this. He says there's a direct relationship between a person's grasp and experience of God's grace and his or own, her own heart and his or her heart for justice and the poor people that really know the grace and mercy and power of King Jesus cannot help but be moved by compassion for the vulnerable and the hurting and the poor. It's the natural outflow of Jesus's 
running, living water in our hearts. So I don't know even what's stirring in you, but, but let me just end with this, this encouragement for proximity. When you look at your own life, if we long to be people of mercy and justice, where is a place where God can invite you to have bigger, deeper proximity with someone who is vulnerable, weak, and hurting? Seriously, that's, that's like a real invitation. That's what we're going to keep talking about even in this series. That's what we long to be as a church because if we want to follow Jesus, we have to become people of mercy and justice. We must. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you, that you don't stand at a distance. That even right now in the room, we acknowledge that there's loneliness, that there's discouragement. Even in the dark days where the sun feels like it's never here, we, we, we acknowledge that that's in the room and we thank you, Jesus, that you enter into these moments and we welcome you. We ask you to continue to, to reveal to us the, the weakness and the vulnerability inside of us. And we ask for your healing power. We ask you to come, Jesus, as the King who makes all things new, who makes everything right, who takes the broken and reconciles it and restores it back to it, its proper way. And Jesus, we, we want to become people of mercy and justice, so will you give us the courage? It takes courage to follow you, to put ourselves in positions and places. Would you move us from hearts of pity to compassion? Even in the room, if there's any shame, for pity, I, I, we, we just silence that voice in Jesus' name and we ask that you would, out of the overflow of our own hearts, move us to become an agent and a source of renewal in our city. We long to be those kinds of people. It's who we want to be, but we cannot do it without your spirit and without your power. <laughs>